you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Good morning, Sozo. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. My name is Mark. My wife and I serve as the lead pastors here. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us this morning. It's good to be in the house. Amen? Amen. Um, we are in a series, as you could probably guess from that video, through the Gospel of John, and we are having fun doing it. Amen? Uh, we've, we've been hanging out for the last few weeks in John chapter 13. Uh, kind of hanging out here for a little bit as we sort of slowly but surely, certainly more slowly than surely, uh, make our way through this great gospel. The gospel of John is the account of the life of Jesus written by what most scholars believe was his closest earthly friend, John the Beloved. And uh, we've been looking at John's unique account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're coming toward uh, really the, the, the Passion Week and the, the crescendo of all of that. We, we've been in the midst of all this, and I'm excited about where the Lord has us. Uh, we've been looking specifically, if you're familiar with the Jesus story, uh, or even if you're not, we're still looking at it, uh, the, uh, the, the portion of the story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And uh, we've been taking a look at this, and what we've seen thus far uh, is that Jesus, in this, demonstrates three things, that Jesus loved, that Jesus served, and that Jesus was humble. And so what we've decided to do is sort of take uh, each of these one week at a time and look at how Jesus demonstrates these three attributes of himself in this account, in this story. And so last week, we saw that Jesus loved. We, 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 we explored this. And what we saw, if you were here, uh, I hope you were. Uh, if not, you can find it on the, the, the log online, video and audio. Uh, what we saw was that you are more loved than you dare to imagine. Three of you are mildly excited about that. No, that's fine. Whatever, dude. Um, three of you. Uh, no, you are, you are more desperately, more ridiculously, more personally, more passionately loved than you can ever possibly hope to think, dream, or imagine. That that love for you is directed towards you by Jesus. And that means that whether you are a saint or whether you are a sinner, you personally are loved by Jesus. Whether you're religious or whether you're rebellious, come on, whether you are somebody who engages in spiritual practices or somebody who engages in sensual practices, you are the object of the affection of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of nuance to that, amen? And we explored that last week, so I would encourage you to, uh, to take some time and look at that if you have not, but I just as a way of reminder, I want us to remember that we are loved by Jesus, Amen. So if you've got a Bible or a phone or a tablet or something that you can get the Bible on, let's go to John chapter 12, verse, or sorry, John chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to read a little farther this week than we have in previous weeks because I think there's some things that will help us understand the service of Jesus. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verse 13. Why do I keep doing that? John chapter 13. I was in 12 for so long, I just think we're still there. John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's continue reading now. We're getting into some new territory. It says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not not my feet only, but also my hands and, and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's go ahead and pray this morning and ask the Lord to speak to us from his word. Holy Spirit, come on church, we thank you for your word. God, we rejoice in the reality that we don't have to wish or wonder what it is that you would say to us, but we can rest assured in your word that you are speaking to us here today. Lord, that there is, a, there is a sure and a steadfast word given to us in these 66 books written by 60-some uh, individuals and yet one singular author, and that is you. And so we come to your word today. We come to this portion of, of this section of your word, and we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would breathe life upon this section, that it would come alive in our hearing, that we would have ears to hear, hearts to receive, feet to walk in obedience to what it is that you would say to us today. Lord, that we would be transformed, that we would be shifted in our thinking, in our perspective, in our understanding by what it is that you would say to us here today. God, that our our attention and our affection would be won by you. God, that we might walk in openness and honesty and obedience to you in our lives. That we might fulfill the great calling that you have given us as your people to Fill this earth with your glory. God, use this day in the furtherance of your purpose, in the answering of the prayer that you taught us to pray, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, everybody said, go ahead and greet somebody around you real fast and then grab a seat. Amen, amen, amen. 
It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Good to be together. It's good to be together. We also greet those who are watching us online. I always wonder what they do in that moment. Do they like have conversations with their family at home? Like probably when you get up and go to the fridge and get a beverage. Um, all right, we're, we're going to go ahead and jump in and, and, and cover this this morning. Uh, if you're taking notes, I, I hope you are. I'd like to talk to you under the title, under the heading, under the understanding of the laboring love of God when affection takes action. Uh, what, I, what I need us to see is this, and, and we talked about this last week. Last week, we focused heavily on the benevolence of God, his kind disposition toward all people. But this week, what we're going to be focusing on is the beneficence of God. Rather, that is that, that when that benevolence takes action, the good that he shows to his people and to all people. And, and I, I really struggle with this because it's, it's almost, in my opinion, impossible to separate the affection of Jesus from the action of Jesus. Because the, the affection of Jesus manifests itself in the actions of Jesus. That the, that the actions of Jesus are motivated by his affection. That his affection seeks to be put on display and so therefore his actions come about. This is a circle that constantly keeps happening. And yet I, I believe there's a nuance here that's important for us to grasp. We need to understand that his affection is the thing that motivates his action. Because, because the the, the, the reality is, many of us, when we see people in leadership, people in authority, people in, 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 in a position over us doing something nice toward us, it's normal to question their motives. Right? Like, why are you doing that? And what we need to understand is that the only thing motivating Jesus in his action toward them at this moment is his affection toward them. He loves them, therefore he is willing to labor for them. We need to get this. Jesus, Jesus is not doing this to gain influence or earn a position or prove something to them about who he is. Rather, Jesus is simply serving them out of his heart of love. He was already, relationally, catch this, he's already their rabbi. He's already their, 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 we would call life coach or pastor or, or leader. He's already in a place of influence over them. He's not seeking to gain that position. He already has it. So this is, this is not him somehow saying, well, I, I really hope these guys will listen to me, and so I think I can, I can earn their trust if I just wash their feet. No, he already had their trust. Are you with me? These, these men had already abandoned everything in their life to follow after him. So relationally, in his position relationally, he already has authority. But then our text shows us that, that he already knew, it says that the Father had given all things into his hand. So spiritually, Jesus already has everything. Amen? Jesus already is, is ruling and reigning over everything. Jesus is already in, in, in complete and utter control of all things. So he does not need to earn or win some sort of position in them. Jesus is not serving them, please hear me, Jesus is not serving them to gain some position of leadership, but rather he is serving them from a place of his lordship. He's already the king of kings and the lord of lords, amen? 
And so his service is motivated by love. What you need to understand is that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That usually, usually people who love Jesus uh, would, would, would agree with that verbally by saying something like amen or hooray or woohoo or that's right or sure or just yes. That works too. Um, I forget how white you are. Um, so collectively, not all of you. Um, so so what, we, what we've got to understand, come on, is that Jesus is, come on, he's not running for, he's not hoping to be, he's not earning, he's not striving, he's not trying to win. He is, come on, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He, there we go. And what this text shows us is that he, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, serves his people. That, 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 is, that is so profoundly significant that if we can grasp both of those things at the same time, I believe it will unlock a revelation about who he is and who he's called us to be that is, that is, that is lost unless we grab that. So he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me put it this way. Let me see if this, this, this can, can encapsulate it. His identity, the identity of Jesus is one of utter supremacy. That's that phrase, that the biblical phrase, king of kings, lord of lords. It's saying, pile up all of the rulers in the world, he's over top of them. Collect all of the influencers on the planet, Jesus has more influence than they do. See, here's the problem. What we often think is, Jesus is a better king or an, over any other king. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say he's the king of certain kings. He's the king of all kings. So, so this is the way I try to describe it and teach y'all. If you were to stack up all of the value, all of the authority, all of the power, all of the influence of all of the kings in all of the earth, all of the lords in all of the earth, and put them on one side of the scale, and you were to put Jesus on the other, the scale would not tip toward the pile of leaders. See, we think, well, oh yeah, sure, Jesus is more more powerful than the president, or more powerful than the queen, or more powerful than the Supreme Court, or more, no, he's more powerful than all of it combined. He's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords. His identity is one of utter and total supremacy. No one is better than Jesus. I will, I will happily use, invest, waste all of my breath getting you to believe that. Jesus is better than everything. And this, this God, this king, this ruler, this supreme one, the highest one, serves his people. Can, can you go with me in your mind to the room that they're in? And, and, and in, in, in other conversations, the disciples try to argue about which one of them is the highest in the pecking order of them. But no one is arguing that Jesus is not over all of them. So the highest one in the room does the lowest job of all. Now we've touched on this idea of washing feet when we talked about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. And so I won't belabor it too much, but, but just in case you missed that or forgot, we need to understand the, the structure and the culture of the day. This is, a, this is a society where people walked, nearly everyone walked nearly everywhere that they went. 
And it was culturally acceptable then, it's not now, for men to wear open-toed uh, toed sandals in public. <laughs> this is one thing Jesus gets to do that you don't. Um, and, and so they, they, wore, they wore sandals out in public, right? They wore what, what we, I, I grew up, I spent a lot of time when I was a t- teenager on the islands, and so we called them slippers. You call them flip-flops. They wore sandals, they wore, they wore, and they, they walked around in public. Now, now, that might not seem like that big a deal until you realize that, that beasts of burden and animals also walked on these roads. And so they left little presents on the road as they went. We, we tend to, in our, in our modern minds, we tend to, to sort of romanticize uh, past times. You know, we, we write stories of chivalry about knights and 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 them, them saving people. We, we write stories about the Old West. We, we like to sort of romanticize these things, but the reality is that none of those times, and including all the way back in this first century, no one had internal plumbing. And so waste would just be thrown out into the street. And then they would walk through this in their open-toed sandals. And so the culture of the day only the lowest of the lowest of the slaves would be forced to wash someone's feet because it was a filthy and a disgusting job. This is not, this is not come, on, come on parents, this is not grab a wet wipe and just kind of wipe it off. This, there's, no, there's no just wiping off, the, no, 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 no. This is, this is caked on, this is, this is ground in filth. And this is part of why the, 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 the fashion of the day, the apparel of the day, was to wear long robes to cover this shameful, this filthy part of yourself. You didn't want to show this part to anyone, so you would wear robes to cover this up. This is part of why only the lowest class of slave was allowed to do this. One, it was, it was, it was because it was such a belittling and, de- and a demeaning job, but also it was because this low class of people, they didn't mind showing this filthy part of themselves too, because who's this person anyways? And so we have now the king of kings, come on, the lord of lords, washing people's feet. Stooping to this low place to take care of a filthy thing. I, I drive this home because we have to get the reality of what's happening. We, we, we have to get this off the flannel graph. Come on, somebody. This can't be a veggie tale. There has to be a reality to this in our mind if it's going to make any difference in the way that we, number one, relate to God, and number two, relate to one another. This has to, this has to be real. But the problem is the reality of his servanthood makes us uncomfortable. It's like watching certain episodes of The Office. You don't want to watch, but you can't help but watch, but it makes you uncomfortable. Not that I ever watched a sinful show like that. We only watched TBN. Um, no. No, no, no. See, it makes us uncomfortable. If, if we really get just how 
just how supreme, just how, just how beautiful, just how valuable, just how worthy he is. And we understand the reality of what he's doing culturally, but more than that, spiritual, the spiritual implications of what's taking place here. When we understand these two things, it makes us uncomfortable. And so what this does in us, please follow with me here, and Peter is a perfect demonstration of this, is it makes us bounce back and forth between opposite perspectives, opposite, opposite reactions to what Jesus is doing. Did you catch that in Peter? He, he has two completely opposite reactions to the same action that Jesus takes. He starts off by trying to reject it, and then he moves into this position of trying to get more from him. I think this is important. I think this is, is important for us to grasp. He, he starts off, Peter starts off by saying, oh, a holy God, my, my God, my Messiah, my rabbi, you are going to wash my feet? Is that really what you're doing, Jesus? You, you, want, you want me to expose the most sinful, shameful, struggling, painful part of who I am to, to you? Let, let, let me go downstairs and get the slave girl. She can come up and she can do this job. Just, you, 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 you are too holy to do this job. Because you see, we somehow believe that God serving, that God, that God meeting us in our need, that God meeting us in our affliction, we fear that God's actions will degrade or diminish his holiness. But in reality, the reality of what's taking place here is that, that in his holiness, he is putting on display by demonstrating his nature, he's actually showing us his holiness. The problem is you and I forget what holy is. See, when we hear the word holy, we tend to think that it's, it, means, it means moral perfection, that God is morally perfect. Now, can, can Christians, real fast, just real, just, just real quick, is God morally perfect? Okay, good. That wasn't a trick question, so good. You were like confident in that. Like I was worried people were like, yeah. Yes, God is morally perfect, but listen to me, holy does not mean morally perfect. It, it is not, let me try to say it this way, it is not a compliment to God to call him holy if what holy means is morally perfect, sinfully pure, pure of sin, because God is not tempted by sin. So it is not an exertion of authority, strength, or power for God to not sin. Let, let, me, let, me, let me put it to you this way. God does not have an internet filter. Right? Like, like, like Jesus didn't walk around the earth like an accountability buddy. There was, there was nothing, listen, there was nothing in sin that, that, that draws at the heart of God. So to call him morally perfect is not a compliment. What the word holy means is set apart. What the word holy implies is the otherness of God. To call him holy is to say you are utterly other. Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen, come on, no ear has heard any God like you. He's in his own class. He's in his own category. There, there's nobody like him. I remember, I, remember I, I, took a, I took an online class in marketing, 
And I remember hearing uh, about, about the, the creation, if you remember, does everybody remember back uh, about 15, 20 years ago when we decided as a country that we needed the largest vehicles we could possibly get our hands on? Right, like vehicles just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Ford announces that they're about to release, this is what they said, the largest vehicle in its class. They had the Explorer before, right, the SUV. And they said, we're about to release the largest vehicle in its class. So all these reporters showed up and all these people flooded in. And they released, they released at that point, the, the, they had the Explorer. And they, they released the next one up from that. Does anybody remember what that one was called? Excursion. And the people were snapping pictures and looking at this big, giant car. I have a friend who, I remember when she first saw it, she said, she was trying to describe it to me. She'd never seen an SUV before. And she said, it's, it's like somebody built a tank but made it a car. And everyone was taking pictures. It was great. And until finally one reporter raised their hand and said, um, I'm looking at the, the spreadsheet here of the, of the dimensions. And, and I have to point out, you said this is the biggest SUV ever, but, but the Suburban is actually bigger than this. And here's what the marketing genius said. Oh, that's because the Suburban is in a class of its own. And no joke, that's why Ford decided to release the Expedition. They had to make a bigger one to get into that class with it. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus, come on, is in a class of his own. There's no one who can compete with him. There's no one who, can, who, who you can compare him to. Consistently throughout the, the, the scriptures, we are presented with a picture of Yahweh that he is not like anyone else. To say God is holy is to say he is like no one else, that there's no one like him. And so when God chooses to serve from his position of lordship, it is a demonstration that he's not like anybody else. Nobody else in that position would have done that, but he's not like, come on, anybody else. He's utterly and totally other. I, I, I want to I coin the term the otherliness of God. The otherliness of him. He, he's, he's not like anybody else. You try to find something to compare God to, and it always, it always, it always falls short. Because he's different. So we, 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 we must not allow ourselves to think that, well, well we have to somehow, my, my sin somehow is going to corrupt his holiness if he were to step into this. No, 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 no. He's not like, his holiness is not corruptible. He's not like others. You see, when God serves, he is displaying his nature. He's displaying his goodness. And what have we learned, church? Please tell me we've learned this. God is always and only good. So when he serves us, come on, He's displaying his goodness. How could that diminish his holiness? The answer is it can't. It doesn't. It's impossible. This is not, this is not me saying God is less than King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you tracking with me? That, that's what we try to do. We try to pull down his holiness. We try to diminish it because it's so uncomfortable for us. Peter says it perfectly. Are you going to wash my feet? You you can't wash my feet. No, 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 no. Jesus, no. 
No, you will. He, he, he doubles down. Did you catch it? You will never, he said, never will I let you do that. He thinks, am I right? He thinks that he's protecting God's holiness somehow. In reality, he is denying Jesus the opportunity to put his holiness on display. Because Jesus is trying to show him his goodness. And he reveals to him the reality that there is a, there is a glory, there is an intimacy, there is an abiding reserved for those who experience, who know, who are convinced, who have the capacity to see the goodness of God. And so Peter flip-flops, right? He, he, he totally changes. He shifts in an instant. He goes from, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, listen, buddy, if I don't wash your feet, you don't get to have any part of me. You will, you will miss out on the intimacy, on the abiding that I designed you for, that I desire for you. You'll miss out on it, Peter. And so Peter flips. And instead of, instead of trying to pull Jesus down, he inst instead decides to try to elevate himself. Well, then let me tell you how you're going to do it, Jesus. Not just my feet, but you better wash my hands and head too. Do you see how quick Peter just, whoop? Peter, I, I, I love, man, I love, Peter gives me hope. <laughs> I talk for a living, so I say a lot of stupid things. And Peter gives me hope. Because Peter, I believe, was the most flexible of all of the disciples. Because that dude could put his foot in his mouth faster than anybody else in the room. He shifts suddenly. I get to pick how. I get to pick where. I get to pick the means by which you serve me, Jesus. If seeing his true identity as utter supremacy makes us too uncomfortable, then we just simply diminish him and elevate ourselves. Th this, this is what American Christianity has done. I've shared this with you before. A, a giant survey was done, thousands of people, where they, where they asked questions about what people believed about God themselves and the world and what, what came out, these are people who would profess to be Christians. And what came out of this has been coined moral therapeutic deism. I don't have time to get into it all the way. I would encourage you to, to jump on and read about it. But one of, the, one of the five tenets of moral therapeutic deism is it does admit that there's a God who exists. But it says he's just sort of watching everything. It says that our lives are really, the whole goal of our lives is to be happy and to enjoy our lives. And it specifically says that God does not need to be intimately involved in our lives except when we choose to invite him when we have a need. See, this is the diminishing of who God is and the elevating of who we are. God, I'll tell you how you're going to interact with me. Really, if I need this thing, if there's a benefit to this thing, well, then let's do it on my terms. I want the benefit, but I don't like the way you want to do it. So let's do it my way. And we do this dance of jumping back and forth between religion and rebellion. We bounce back and forth. We, we, we constantly unravel making excuses as to why we will not allow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords access 
to the most shameful parts of ourselves. We dance around and we cover our eyes and we plug our ears and we shift over here and we shift over there and we have this argument and that argument and we make all of these things, but in reality we're doing it all because we prefer hiding more than healing. I don't want to show Jesus the shameful parts of myself. The evidence that my journey has not been one of dancing along perfectly white fluffy clouds. I don't want to have to show evidence that along the trail I've done some stupid things and had some stupid things done to me. And so therefore there's some dirt and some filth and some scars and some cuts and some wounds and some pain and I don't want, I'll just leave the skirt around and Jesus, you can just stay over there. I'm happy to have a meal with you. want to be one of your disciples. We're not going there. We're not, we're not, we're not, we don't, we don't talk about that. We just pretend like Jesus is not really aware of everything. None, none, no, no Christian in the room that, that, uh, that knows at least a little bit of their Bible, has hung around in the church for at least a little while, w- would say that they believe that Jesus doesn't know everything about them. Everyone would agree that Jesus knows everything about you. And yet, functionally, you think if you don't talk to him about it, he doesn't know about it. Like, if I don't talk about what I looked at on the internet, if I don't talk about how I talk to my kids, if I don't talk to him about how I behave around my wife, if I don't talk to him about the little, the little time and stuff I steal from work, if I don't talk to him about, then he doesn't know about it. Waymaker, miracle work. We'll just talk about that. Let's just, let's just, Jesus, let's just talk about you. You know, you're great. You're awesome. Let's just leave my feet alone. We prefer to hide. We prefer hiding instead of healing. Because healing requires us exposing the broken parts of ourselves. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we expose the shame, it will grow. But I need you to hear me, beloved. I need you to hear me. Shame grows in the dark. Look, look, look Peter, your feet are never going to be cleaner than they are right now unless you let me wa- wash them. You going and traipsing through the field some more is not going to get these feet any cleaner. Let's deal with it now. Let's address it now. Let's, let's talk about it now. Let's stop hiding now. Let's bring some healing now. See, we, we've somehow bought into a lie that Jesus isn't really interested in the broken parts of us. That Jesus isn't really interested in the filthy parts of us. That Jesus isn't really interested in in the parts of us that are embarrassing, the parts of us that are frail, the parts of us that are weak, the parts of us that don't add anything to his ledger as if we ever add anything to his ledger. 
this, this rears its head with the belief that when we sin, God runs away from us. I, I, don't, I, know, I, know, I know none of y'all ever struggle with this, but that's, that's, what, that's what religion taught me. Every time you mess up, God runs away, leaves you alone. And you better, you better cry real good. You better prove, I didn't know what the gallon, the gallon quantity was, but it's at least one, tears, and then, maybe then, God will look at your misery, and if you prove it good enough, I mean, I'm talking tears, and where, where the snot's going, and the voice cracks, and you need all that, then he'll let you back in, but you mess up again, you're out. It's not in here, but that's what I learned. Because that's the way everybody else is. But Jesus isn't like everybody else. He says, I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. Let me, let, me, let me put it to you another way. Jesus says, I know that you try to run away from me, but I'm faster than you. And I can run farther than you. Jesus is not scared of your weakness. He is drawn to you in your weakness. This, 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 is, not a, this is not platitudes. This is not, listen to me, listen. This is not me just making up stuff about Jesus. Recognize this about what's happening in the story. See what's taking place here. Understand where they are in their journey. They, they're thinking, look, look, the fame and the renown and the success of Jesus is only going up right now. He's just walked into Jerusalem like, like New York City, Times Square, and every screen and every person is just raving about how awesome Jesus is. He's, he's finally been able to, to just defeat the arguments of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's, he, is, he is proving just how awesome he is. I know what that room felt like. Man, they were pumped. They were finally here. The biggest feast of the year. Jesus is here in Jerusalem. People are excited. They're probably thinking we're about to go on the world tour. But Jesus knows that the passion is about to begin. Jesus is drawn to them in their weakness. In his holiness, Jesus is drawn to the most broken parts of your story, the weakest parts of who you are. And this, beloved, has always been and will always be the heart of God. I, I, I don't know why, but I feel like I need to address this. I wasn't planning on it. There is an erroneous belief that is creeping into things that call themselves churches, coming out of the mouths of people who call themselves pastors, that says that, that Jesus is the evolution of God. That, that, that th this is the way they, they try to say it, right? That Old Testament God is angry 
egotistical junior higher God. Come on, anybody ever go to a junior high? And there's that one kid who between 6th grade and 7th grade hit his gross spurt, drank a gallon of milk every day, and showed up to school looking like, like with full beard. And you're like, what happened to you? And he just walked around the whole school every day with his chest puffed out looking to throw down. That's what they say. That, no, that was the Old Testament. He was confused and angry and bitter and jaded and, and he was really upset about we don't really know what. Um, I mean, there's a father and there's a son. Maybe mom took off, and so dad's mad, and like, he's up there. But then, but then by the time we get to the New Testament, God sort of figured his stuff out. He's worked through his issues. He's morally progressed enough that he's calm and peaceful. And so now we get, we get, we get Jesus, who has feathered hair, who pets lambs who likes children, and he's just a sweetie pie. The problem is that that's not the narrative of Scripture at all. That is foreign from the narrative of Scripture. God has consistently always been, listen to me, always been the same. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he'll be the same forever. The Bible says there's no shadow of turning, there's no shifting within him. So me saying that Jesus is not scared of your weakness, but he is drawn to you. I, I picked that word perfect, and on purpose. He's not drawn to your weakness. He's drawn to you in your weakness. That's not a new characteristic of God. I'll prove it. Genesis chapter 3. This is the first instance of sin in hu the human story. Our first parents, right, you're, you're, you're probably familiar with this if you tracked with church or if you just kind of know culturally, right, Adam and Eve, they, they took a bite of the apple. We don't actually know that it was an apple, by the way. It just says fruit. I think, we, I, think, I think we make it an apple because we don't want to think that they actually took the time to peel it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I genuinely don't think that's true. I think Eve was like, I'm peeling the orange and whole baby. This is good. No, we want to think it was just like, it just happened, right? Because then our sin just happened. Like, Y'all don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, and this I'm about to read this to you, how, how, how sinful people react and how God reacts. Same thing happens here. So, and today, that's Adam and Eve. Everybody say Adam. Eve. Eve. They both sinned. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I can't, I, that, that, just, that right there, I could meditate on that all day long. What does God walking in the garden sound like? Really cool. And the man and his wife, who is that? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? In the beginning, God created us in, in, in his image. We were to bear the image of God. Tracking with me? Sin marred that image. The fall, I like the way N.T. Wright says it. We were to be mirrors of God, but sin, called the fall, broke the mirror. There's still aspects there. There's still, there's still aspects there, but it's broken. It's shattered. It's tweaked. It's twisted. It's, it's, 
It's a circus mirror now. Things are distorted. I find this so interesting because here we see the pattern. God doesn't hide from us. We hide from him. And what religion does is it makes, doesn't, it doesn't say we're made in God's image. It says God's made in our image. So we say, no, no, God's the one who hides. But what God does is he's drawn to them in their brokenness. Can I, can I ask, an honest, ask you to ask yourself an honest question? The last three words of verse 9, they're in quotations. They're ascribed to that, that word, all capital, Lord, Yahweh. That's personally identifying God by his name, Yahweh. He says, where are you? Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Did he not know? Or did Adam not know? See, Jesus is drawn to you in your weakness. God sees Adam and Eve reject him, rebel against him, throw every good and perfect gift that he'd ever given them back in his face and say, we're going to pick it for ourselves the way we're going to live. We're going to pick for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. We're going to pick that for ourselves. We can decide. We can choose. And God sees that. But God sees what that's going to produce in them, and so he runs to them. And he asks them, do you realize where you are right now? Do, do you know where you are, Adam? Are you aware of the place you have walked yourself? Because I am, and I'm right here. I've said this this way before, I'll keep saying it. He rejects your rejection. This is the part that makes people real uncomfortable, and if you got a better way to describe this, please come and give it to me. He's like a junior high girlfriend. You don't break up till she says you're broken up. All the dudes in the room are not looking at their wives, and I think that's hilarious. Because they're like, I think technically I might still be dating my junior high girlfriend. <laughs> he rejects your rejection. I have, I have really good news, beloved. Humanity's rebellion against God failed. And he stands victorious. We don't get to reject him. He comes running at your brokenness. But not just that. The scriptures teach us that he wants to stand up in your sin, in your shame, in your sorrow, in your suffering, and bring a victory that you are incapable of achieving on your own. So he doesn't just run to you in your weakness and just plop down in the muck and the mire that you've made for yourself and just wail with you in your little self-pity. But he says, I'm going to stand up in you and I'm going to bring you a victory that you couldn't bring yourself. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I'm going to read this to you out of the Passion because I, I think some of us who've heard this too many times out of the King James or New King James or ESV we don't realize what it is Paul is saying here. And I love the way that this says it. It says, in, he, speaking of God, answered me, 
my grace is always more than enough for you. And my power finds its full expression through your weakness. His grace is this, what you're used to hearing, sufficient. I like, I, I like that Dr. Simmons is just like, let me just put it to you straight. It's more than enough. Sufficient sounds prettier. More than enough gets the point across better. It's always more than enough for you. My power finds its full expression through your weakness. So here's how Paul responds to that. So I will celebrate my weakness. For when I am weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. He doesn't leave you there. He brings to that place a healing, a victory, a, a, a authority, a power that you can stand in the midst of that thing. He called Adam and Eve out of hiding to him. And in that moment, promises a deliverance not brought by their work, but by his goodness. Jesus finds them in their frailty. You see, if we fail to let him touch the frail parts of ourselves, he says, you're going to miss what I have for you. Peter, Peter, I want you to know me on a deeper level, but you thinking that you have to hide this part of yourself from me is robbing you of the intimacy that you long for and I long for you. Now, Jesus, I want to be clear, he washed their feet. He washed it. He didn't, just, he didn't just pick it up and go, yep, there it is. He washed it. He deals with it. We're, we're, next time we're together, we're going we're to talk about the incredible price he paid to do that. But today, we just need to see that he does it. Let me just put it to you straight. He is not too holy to touch your sin, and you are not too dirty for him to wash. Jesus knew that his passion would leave them confused, wounded, and alone. So he takes pity on them and once again demonstrates his deep love for them. He takes pity on them and their weakness. He knew, he knew, listen, before they betray him, before they deny him, before they abandon him, he knows that's about to happen. The story makes it clear. Did you, did you hear? The account makes it clear that he's fully aware of what's about to happen. He's fully aware that, that all of them are about to run for the hills. Save John the Beloved. We'll get to that. They're all about to abandon him. And yet he takes pity on them in their weakness. And he desires for them to know an intimacy with him. And so he demonstrates for them one more time, one more time, his love, his affection, his care. And you might be here and you might be so prideful that you might be sitting there saying, I don't want anybody to pity me. Listen to me, friend, you need the pity of Jesus. 
You need him to pity you. You need him to understand the frailty and the weakness that we walk in apart from him. So Jesus does this. He takes pity on them. He reminds them one last time just how much he loves them. By touching and healing the dirtiest, the most broken, the most shameful, the most private parts of who they are. Jesus loves you and his love has produced a labor on your behalf. He's not okay with you thinking that he simply has an emotional feeling toward you. But he paid an ultimate price so that you would be convinced of his affection. Let's stand to our feet. morning as we move into our response, I, I want to just encourage us. I believe that we serve a God that shatters shame. Listen, I, I, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like there's only a few of us that may have things in our story, things in our past. Come on, beloved. Things even maybe still hanging around in our present for which we carry a level of shame. Areas that are not polite dinner conversation. Come on things that we hope never see the light of day. The reality is, is it's a part of the human story. And I, I touched on this last week, just the reality that, that Jesus washed all of their feet. Sure, he washed John the Beloved's feet, the guy who would stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus is going through the most agonizing moment of all the cosmos. Sure, that friend who stuck with him, he washed his feet. But he also washes nine other feet of men that had committed to follow him wherever he went and be with him everywhere he was nine men that would abandon him in his time of need. He washes their feet too. He washes Peter's feet who would not only abandon him but flat out repeatedly deny he ever knew him. And yes, friend, he washed 
Judas' feet. The man who, for whatever reason, chose to betray his rabbi, his Messiah. Wherever you are in your journey, there's a part of your story that the goodness of God desires to touch and bring healing. My question for you this morning is, are you done hiding? Are you done pretending like your robe can somehow cover up enough the broken parts of who you are? We serve a God, come on church, that shatters shame. So this morning, I, I want to just ask you some questions and then we're, we're going to respond. I, I want you to just take some time. We, we respond, we say this right, one of the ways we respond is through contemplation. I want you to take some time as, as the worship team sings and leads us and, and reminds us of the presence of God that is here with us. As we, as we enter in back into an awareness of his presence, I want to give you some things to discuss with him in these moments. First is simply this, will you get honest with him? about the broken places in your life. The sin, the struggle, the shame. And I feel like I need to make this very clear. When I say sin, I don't just mean the sins that you've committed. I mean the sins that have been committed against you as well. Get honest with him about it. Will you let him touch the parts of your story that you've hidden from him for so long? And then simply this, will you trust him that he will give you what you need in that moment? Will you trust him with it? I, I don't know what your journey's gonna be like, but I can tell you this about mine. When I got honest with God, he started to, he started to lead me down some paths of some, of some things that if I'm gonna be totally transparent with you, were just way too practical for what I wanted. I wanted like lots of goosebumps and smoke to fill the room and a light to crack open in the ceiling and like me to just be miraculously delivered and healed. But instead I got some things like sit down and write a letter to somebody who abused you. I was like, hey Jesus, I came here for healing, not, not, not an English assignment. But you wanna know how you know if you trust somebody? You obey them. I'm going to tell you what Mary told a, a, a few servants at a wedding party. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Come on, that, that's, that's good preaching right there. Whatever he tells you to do. See, in church, I'm supposed to say surrender, but what I want to say is shut up. Just shut up and do it. But also, I'll be nice. Like, surrender to his leading and do it. I think God might give you some practical things that you might, he might call you to do. Will you trust him? I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna respond. We're gonna open up communion. We, we choose to respond. Celebration, contemplation, communion. Celebration, we're gonna worship Jesus. Contemplation, we've already talked about that. Communion. We've chosen to take communion every time we gather together. We do have 
prepackaged communion in the back, on tables in the back, if in this season you would prefer to take communion that way. But as a community, we've decided to take communion through a method known as antiquation, where we take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and partake. We do have gluten-free available on the edges here on the white tables. If you would need that, please make use of that. These tables are open to all who put their faith in Jesus. Two things I'll ask you if you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you're just here to kind of checking this thing out and kind of trying to understand the church and Jesus and this, all this stuff, I'm not going to ask you to pretend like you're a Christian and come up and take communion. You can just hang out in your seat. But here's the second question I want to ask you. Why haven't you trusted Jesus? I said it earlier, and it's no less true now. He's better than everything. And he's calling you here today not so you could listen to good music, not so you could hear the ramblings of a preacher, not so you could check off the box if you did a good religious thing this week, but rather he called you here today to, 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 to command you, to call you, to invite you, to admit and abandon your sin and to embrace him as your only means of hope and your only way of life and your only savior. The Bible calls that repentance and belief. And I'm pleading with you today to do that so that the second part of communion you can participate with us in. And that is this, we have a team of people that are gonna meet over by the cross in the back of the room over here and they would love the chance to stand with you and commune, to just talk with you and to pray with you, to stand with you and believe God to move in your life, whether that's admitting and abandoning your sin, whether that's being open about some of the places in your life that you've tried to hide, whether that's healing in your body, restoration in relationships breakthrough in finance, whatever it might be, they just love the chance to pray with you. So I'm going to pray and we're going to respond. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that's been here with us today. God, thank you that you do never leave us. You never forsake us. You never abandon us. You never leave us alone, but that you are with us. God, I pray that we would have the boldness, have the grace to be honest, to be open, to obey. God, to put it simply, to trust you with the broken parts of who we are. And that today you would wash away, you would wipe away, you would bring healing, you would bring deliverance, you would bring a freedom to areas of our life that we would be a people that would live open and free before you that we would be a people that would live open and free everywhere we go. That we would know the good that comes from obeying you, from following you. In Jesus' name, church, let's respond to the Lord.